Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week on We the People, we're sharing a debate about the future of affirmative action, which ran recently on our companion podcast, live at the National Constitution Center. Two great scholars, William B. Allen of Michigan State University and Hassan Kwame Jeffries of The Ohio State University, joined me for an illuminating conversation, which was streamed live on May 4th, 2023. Enjoy the show. Hello, friends. Welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. And as always, let's begin by inspiring ourselves for the discussion by reciting together the National Constitution Center's mission statement. Here we go. You can do it by heart. I know you can. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the U.S. Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. And now it's a great pleasure to introduce our panel. William B. Allen is resident scholar and former chief operating officer of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education. He is Emeritus Professor of Political Philosophy in the Department of Political Science and Emeritus Dean of the James Madison College at Michigan State University. He's published extensively and his work always illuminates. And his most recent book is The State of Black America, Progress, Pitfalls, and the Promise of the Republic. And Hassan Kwame Jeffries is Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University. His also illuminating work includes Bloody Lounds, Civil Rights and Black Power in Alabama's Black Belt. Uh, his current book project is In the Shadow of Civil Rights, and he hosts the podcast Teaching Hard History, and is a, uh, both uh, Professors Jeffries and Allen are great friends of the National Constitution Center. Welcome to you both. I want to thank uh, you, Professor Allen, for reached, reaching out and suggesting the topic of the future of affirmative action is so important. And in light of an expected Supreme Court decision on the topic, which is uh, going to be a landmark decision either way, you suggested convening this dream team of civil dialogue. You and Professor Jeffries have united before uh, on many occasions to discuss the topic. Uh, I'm so grateful you're both here. It's an honor always to moderate this conversation. And let me begin by asking each of you to review the modern history of affirmative action in the courts. Uh, starting with you, Professor Allen. Well, thank you very much. And let me first say it's a joy to join with you and with my colleague, Dr. Jeffries. I think this is a very important conversation, but you will forgive me if I'm all the more pleased just to be able to share the time with you. Regarding the history of affirmative action, uh, it is, of course, a century-long history properly told but that's not fit for us in this context. We're focused on what happened since 1978 in the Bakke decision, when Justice Louis F. Powell wrote the opinion for the court, the deciding opinion, and introduced the term diversity, which established thenceforth, especially in higher education, the practice of affirmative action, and which spread from higher education throughout all the major institutions of American society. Ever since that time, it's been constantly under litigation, and at the same time has gone through a process of being uh, litigated politically through referenda, popular initiatives in several states. 
And so we know that it has an up and down history, except in the course of the litigation in the Supreme Court, in which it has been, in most cases, consistently affirmed, even though qualified. And the only exception to that was in the, uh, the Gratz decision with the University of Michigan in 2003. But that was partnered with the Grutter decision, Grutter versus Bollinger in 2003, in which Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor reaffirmed affirmative action, but with the proviso that it be limited in time. She projected a period of 25 years more before fundamental reconsideration would be in order. So that's what brings us to the present moment and the present reconsideration. It's five years ahead of schedule, but we can discuss in the course of the program why it has occurred at this point rather than waiting until 2028. So the final question I would add to this with regard to the history of affirmative action is precisely the question of whether it is still possible within the context of American law to deal with the questions at the heart of affirmative action or whether they require us to go outside of litigation. Professor Jeffries, how would you uh, share with our audience the history of affirmative action starting at Boggy? Weigh in a little bit here um, and add just a few things. Uh, first, I want to I want to express my appreciation, Jeffrey, for hosting this um, conversation and, and making this a town hall for the National Constitution Center, uh, and express my gratitude, Dr. Allen, for suggesting uh, this timely conversation and um, inviting me to be a part of it. Um, you're absolutely right, and you gave us a wonderful history of sort of the last almost, you know, 50 years, we're coming up on almost a half century um, of affirmative action as it has been debated and discussed and uh, litigated within the courts, um, centering around education. Uh, But of course, you know, education is just one aspect, one area in which affirmative action policies, of course, have been implemented. Originally, you know, I think it's important to note that it was the radical leftist uh, Richard Nixon, uh, in his administration, uh, that ushers in uh, the first affirmative action policies, uh, and they were targeting uh, not education, not schools, but rather um, construction industry jobs, uh, which was critical because it, 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 you know, there was the issue of rampant racial discrimination in the construction trades, and when thinking about. Um, economic opportunity on a very base level, very individual level. I mean, this was one industry in which African-Americans, particularly African-American men, uh, would be capable of participating in and yet have been frozen out. Uh, and so we see the Nixon administration um, you know, on board with this idea of opening up avenues, opening up opportunities by requiring those uh, in the construction trades that had some measure of working on federal contracts uh, to make sure uh, that they were actually employing um, and allowing to work uh, on the on the sites uh, African Americans, and this you know sort of became a, a bit of the model. Uh, and then, of course, we see uh, you know what has become sort of the lightning rod, and that let's be clear too. Uh, was a was a lightning rod issue itself on the ground in cities like Philadelphia, uh, where you had the construction trades really pushing back hard. Um, but I, I, I will add this, and, and then and, the, and then we can we can we can we can open it up too um, to some other questions that Jeff might have. Um, 
I think what we, I like the way you frame this question um, of, you know, what has, how affirmative action in education, uh, particularly in the courts, has sort of played out. Because it's been affirmed, as you said, but with these ever increasing qualifications that have rendered its effectiveness and it's a, and, and, and in an explicit way, I think, um, almost nominal. Um, so there's what's happening, especially after the 2003 decisions, in which the courts did not say, in, in addition to O'Connor's, okay, let's put a, let's put a time frame on this, which, I, you know, which is a subject for a different day. Uh, <laughs> it would be nice if it all disappeared, right? In 2020. <laughs> but anyway, so, but, you know, they, the, the emphasis, one of the things that I saw um, coming after that, that, that those two, 2003 Michigan and Texas decisions is the court saying, look, like you can't, let, let, don't, don't put so much weight, right? You, you, you just can't, you, you, we don't want to quantify it, right? We have gotten rid of quotas, quote unquote, years before. We're not going to quantify it. You know, it can be considered, but it's not going to be numerical. But one of the things that then happened and I saw this at my university, at the Ohio State University, is the almost wholesale dropping of race as a serious consideration in admissions and education, um, you know, out of fear potentially of lawsuits. But it wasn't that the court said you couldn't do it. But then we see these universities effectively taking steps already, right, 20 years earlier, right, 20 years before, you know, ago, taking steps not to push through. Uh, with serious consideration of race and admissions and the like. And that has had a real effect. Um, and we've seen that effect uh, in terms of admissions and enrollment of African-American students of color, particularly African-Americans over, over the generation. So it, it, it's, a, it's, it's you know, a, a long history, half a century almost, uh, in which it has been affirmed, but it's important to say this has been chip, chipping away right, over the last couple of decades. And now we're coming face-to-face uh, with the likelihood that it will be will be totally overturned uh, in the next month or so. Thank you both for framing the question so well and for uh, focusing us now on what's likely to happen at the court. Um, as, as you both said, as, as everyone acknowledges, there's a strong likelihood that affirmative action will be struck down at the court. And mm-hmm. um it could be struck down uh, broadly or, or more narrowly, uh, ranging from the position that the Constitution is colorblind in all circumstances and, and nothing short of remediating past discrimination that's identifiable can justify racial classifications to, to something uh, narrower. Uh, Professor Allen, how do you think the majority is likely to strike down affirmative action? On what legal grounds and on what legal grounds do you think it should strike down affirmative action? Well, I think we can get to that fairly quickly if we take advantage of what Dr. Jeffries introduced when he mentioned President Nixon's goals and timetables, uh, which he put under the direction of Arthur Fletcher back in during that administration. That focused so squarely on the question of quotas that the original litigation about affirmative action became a question of whether you can use quotas or not. Ever since then, and this is what reached its peak in the Bakke decision in 1978, We've been trying to configure race regarding policies of entry, whether into educational or other institutions, that could not be determined as quotas. 
at the same time as we had, as in the Griggs versus Duke Power Company case, the introduction of disparate impact and disparate treatment and distinguishing between those, i.e. we can justify giving preferences where we can create a documented record of disparate eventualities on the basis of race. So we have backed away from all of that effectively. We haven't overturned, of course, disparate impact. We still see it operating in some arenas and the court hasn't squarely faced up to it. So part of what's going to be happening in the present case is both dealing with the question of the immediate practice of racial preferences without regard to disparate impact and a review of the significance of disparate impact, the remediation theory that Dr. Jeffries was talking about. So we are at the point at which I think Dr. Jeffries is quite right, where we might be saying once and for all, we're going to put an end to that particular approach to resolving historical deficiencies or injuries. Now, one of the reasons we need to do that is revealed in what the foundation of the present case is out of Harvard and the University of North Carolina is, which is to say the effect upon people of Asian descent. And we had already put our finger on that emerging problem in the 1980s when we identified its occurrence at UCLA and University of California, Berkeley. There would come a time when sooner or later it would pose a challenge to the whole edifice. So what we see now is the, the grounds will be whether you can sustain practices that originated with the primary focus on black people, but which has evolved over time to an ever-expanding list of constituencies, and whether that's compatible with the constitutional order. That's really going to be the fundamental ground that the court is taking up. And if it decides to wipe it out altogether, as Dr. Jeffrey suggested may be possible, it's no longer going to be on the basis of colorblindness. They're not going to go back to that dissenting opinion from Plessy versus Ferguson, but it's going to be rather on a, a more originalist proposition about the Constitution and the definition of equality as a equality that is distinguished by equal and fair administration of the laws. That will become the fundamental grounds of the decision. Professor Jeffries, I'm going to ask you to imagine, uh, write the dissent that you imagine the, the, the liberals may write. And I, I know you're, you, you flag for us and you're interested in Justice Jackson's questions at the oral argument, suggesting that uh, proponents of original understanding, which... Uh, Professor Allen just mentioned, should not strike down affirmative action because the 14th Amendment framers themselves were race conscious. I understood that we looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution, at what the framers and the founders thought about. And when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment in a race conscious way. I don't think that the historical record establishes that the founders uh, believed that race neutrality or race blindness was required, right? They drafted the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which specifically stated that citizens would have the same civil rights as enjoyed by white citizens. That's the point of that act, to make sure that the other citizens, the black citizens, would have the same as the white citizens, so they recognized that there was unequal treatment, that people based on their race were being treated uh, unequally. And importantly, 
when there was a concern that the Civil Rights Act wouldn't have a constitutional foundation, that's when the 14th Amendment came into play. It was drafted to give a foundational, uh, a, a constitutional foundation for a piece of legislation that was designed to make people who had less opportunity and less rights equal to white citizens. Professor Jeffries, tell us about the significance of that clip and, and how you think it may play in the dissent. Well, I agree with Justice Jackson. Um, you know, we're fooling ourselves in two instances. If we think that the original framers, the founders of the nation, original framers of the Constitution, were somehow colorblind, they were creating a government to support, prop up, and extend rights using universal language, but for propertyed white men. I mean, let's let's let. Uh, I think we, we we ought to be clear about that. And then this was a nation that fully embraced a belief in white supremacy and the exclusion of enslaved people, African-Americans, indigenous people from the body politic. What we see with the 14th Amendment, what we see with the end of the Civil War is Congress saying, and eventually ratified by the states, that, listen, we understand that the problem of inequality right, is rooted in race and racism. And so in order to address these issues, we're going to speak specifically about race. We're going to say you can't exclude people on the basis of race. You can't discriminate against people on the basis of race. And therefore, in order to protect and make sure that we have uh, equal opportunity, that we have an equal, um, everyone is treated equally and fairly, that it is okay, obviously, to take race into consideration. I think what we have seen with the courts over, but particularly, the, specifically the Roberts Court, uh, is really a, a twisting of reality uh, in terms of making this argument. And, 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 and Roberts has, has made this repeatedly. We, we, we see it in, in, in the Shelby decision. Um, and, and most likely we're going to see it again, I think, in, 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 in whoever writes the majority opinion here. This idea that any consideration of race is itself racist. And that's absurd because we're not talking about discriminating, uh, considering the race of applicants in education, for example, is not for the purpose of discriminating against people, but rather to make sure that people of a uh, people of color, that African-Americans in this historic instance have equal opportunity, equal access, because these barriers and uh, these barriers have been erected over time. Now, if we were, if the court was being serious about, was seriously concerned, and even the, 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 the petitioners, if they were seriously concerned about access and equal access, they wouldn't be talking about considerations of race in admissions at Harvard or at UNC Chapel Hill. They'd be talking about legacy admissions, uh, people who receive extra benefits simply because their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents uh, attended the university or are big donors. Far more people uh, get far more benefit when it comes to consideration of admissions when we consider this sort of legacy criteria than have ever at Harvard or UNC uh, received the benefit simply because they are African-American. And so that raises the question of disingenuine, disingenuousness 
when it comes to the arguments that we that that have been made and likely will serve as the basis for the decision. Professor Allen, give us, if you will, the defense of an originalist striking down of affirmative action. This question came up extensively at oral argument. And uh, why do you think, as an originalist and a textualist, that uh, colorblindness or or suspicion of race consciousness is well-rooted in text and history? Well, uh, that defense is relatively straightforward and simple and derives from the era in Justice Brown Jackson's discussions in the oral arguments. For she traces a reference to a specific and explicit inclusion of race as a grounds for decision. You won't find that in the language of the 14th Amendment, just as you won't find any explicit recognition of slavery in the original Constitution. So what you have to do is go back to the legislative record. You go back to the legislative record and you find Lyman Trumbull, who in many ways is the chief architect of Reconstruction policy around which these amendments were eventually framed, who describes exactly and specifically what the intention is. And yes, the reference is to the recently immediately freed people. But what he says is our goal is to make sure that they are received into the citizen body as full and mature citizens, not as dependent minors. And so that was the point of reference, to affirm the full humanity of the freed persons and not to distinguish them in the way that Justice Earl Warren does in Brown versus Board of Education as a people dependent upon the continuing wardship of a superior authority. So the the argument for an original understanding doesn't mean that when the Reconstruction Amendments were passed, everything was settled. It does mean the principles upon which those amendments were passed embraced everyone and did not license race regarding or race-specific policies. So the slaughterhouse cases, which is the only source for an original understanding of the race-specific content, and which is therefore the wrong uh, place to return for an original understanding, made a distinction between the races and set us on the course of treating race regarding policy as the legacy of those amendments. That is where we went awry to begin with. So, So it's really important for us to understand that when the Civil Rights Acts were passed in 1867 and 1873, and especially when they refer to assuring that black citizens have the same rights as white citizens, that is correct. But it didn't mean to say that black people, therefore, had to be the beneficiaries of benign discrimination. The very expression of same rights is enough to lead us away from the expectation of some benign practices in relationship to it. So the the historical, recent history, that is, defense of affirmative action as benign discrimination as opposed to malign discrimination is not a reflection of an original intent. Professor Jeffries, your response, because I think you both really put your finger on the central question, which is, what does it mean to um, have cast legislation that signals a group as subordinate or dependent or less than equal. I I think both sides agree that the framers of the 14th Amendment meant to prohibit caste legislation, but you seem to be disagreeing about whether or not affirmative action does make African-Americans equal or 
suggest that they're in some sense dependent. Is is that right? And 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 what are your other responses to Professor Allen? Yeah, I I don't think that the having policies that are designed to ensure access and opportunity to people who are discriminated against um, creates discrimination against the people you're trying to solve problems for. That, that I don't quite understand. I might have to, you know, sit in on a couple more of Dr. Wood Allen's classes. You know, I, I'm not following that particular logic. In other words, and, 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 and I also have to, you know, take, take a little, I, I'm just, I'm uncomfortable with this idea of, uh, you know, benign discrimination and malign and, and, and malign discrimination, because we're not talking about discriminating against people. We're saying this is this is what always has troubled me about sort of, you know, the argument that somehow making sure ensuring that the door is open is somehow closing it on other people. And, and that's not the case. Right. I mean, we're looking at policies that make sure that African-Americans are not in admissions historically discriminated against. And we cannot pretend as though we haven't had a history of discrimination where black folk just simply were not allowed to attend major state universities because they were black, period. And so the question is, okay, once you say, all right, that is unconstitutional, you can't just discriminate against people on the basis of race, and then finally we're going to enforce that, that doesn't mean that either the attitudes or the system that have been in place to funnel people into these universities suddenly evaporated. That, that, that's a timetable. Uh, that we have to seriously consider. How long does it take uh, for that kind of equality to be reached will only be determined on how long it takes for the systems that create that equality that have been in place, even when you don't have bad actors or ill-intentioned actors, uh, to, to produce full equality of opportunity. And that's what I think affirmative action, even in its, you know, you know, even though it isn't a you know a solution, uh, was simply designed to do, and I think that is important for for us to recognize. If we're serious, if we're serious, last night, if we're serious about addressing problems that have been born of racial discrimination, then we have to be serious about considering race in the solutions that we're proposing to address those issues. Otherwise, otherwise, we're just like, well, we hope it addresses the issue. Either you want to address the issue of discrimination and its impact, or you don't. Because if you want to address it on the basis of you know, racial discrimination, then we got to consider race. Otherwise, we're just playing games. And we're like, eh, maybe, maybe it's not so bad. They'll figure it out. If we want to consider discrimination, we have to consider race. And Professor Allen, of course, uh, John Roberts uh, memorably said the only way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Um, and did, tell us specifically in, in legal terms on, on exactly what the court decision is likely to say. It, it, it will repudiate diversity as a compelling interest for uh, purposes of uh, racial classifications. And will it then just allow for race consciousness to remedy specific and identifiable acts of past discrimination? And will the court's decision, in your view, leave any room for race consciousness in higher education admissions or not? 
Uh, I think you've just stated it. Yes, indeed. It will be a denial of, of access to principles of racial reference as terms of admission and participation. You, you can't have a lottery at the same time that you're having race regarding choices. It's no longer a lottery then. Now, is it ever a lottery? Because that's the question Dr. Jeffries is concerned with. He thinks there's so many ways in which it's not a lottery. Uh, that is certainly true within limits. But that lim those limits can't be extended so broadly as to make all terms of entry terms of specific preferences in order to erase discriminatory preferences. It is, it is a case, as it seems to me, that what Justice Roberts means should be read in the following way. That only if we take race off the table can we discipline the use of race. For as long as we leave it on the table, people will, through subterfuge and otherwise, continue to apply it malignly, even though they claim to be doing so for benign purposes. So what you'll actually get out of affirmative action is the paternalism that the very patrician Lewis Powell was in fact practicing when he wrote the opinion in Bakke. And that paternalism will reinforce the power to shift from one category of preference to another by discretion. And so trying to root out those discretions seems to be the only way to make sure the door is open, to quote Dr. Jeffries again. He says it's equal opportunity that is sought, and he's aware that it was Lyndon Johnson who set the tone for us when he told us equal opportunity is not enough. Well, if equal opportunity is the objective, then one must draw the line in such a way that you come as close as possible to a lottery effect. And, and that is where the legal opinion is going to go. I'm not stating it in legal language because I think there's something else going on here. And I don't want to deflect us from the conversation. But I think there's something else at stake besides the question of remedying past racial discrimination. And that is the history of a Roberts court, whether there's going to be a Roberts court or not. Uh, that was called into question a year ago in the Dobbs decision, uh, a decision that Roberts was not pleased with. And now we're standing at the threshold of a moment in which what is going to be determined is exactly what rule of prudence John Roberts is going to follow to try to reestablish that his will be a distinctive court as we once spoke of a Rehnquist court or a Warren court or a Marshall court. He may be on the threshold of losing that degree of authority in terms of the breakdown of votes on the court. And so his decision is in some way, I predict, going to be mediated with reference to that. That's so interesting. And of course, uh, Chief Justice Roberts would have the opportunity to write the decision if he's in the majority. And what a mediating exactly. decision would look like is a very interesting question. I'll, I'll ask you, Professor Jeffries, what, what, whether you think there's any mediating majority opinion short of a version of colorblindness that doesn't allow for racial classifications except for specific acts of past discrimination. And then let me ask you to basically write the dissent. Will it simply reaffirm Bakke and Grutter and say diversity in higher education is a compelling interest? Or might the liberal justices take a more expansive view about what kind of affirmative action is permissible? Well, I think that judging from um, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in Shelby, um, Shelby versus Holder, which is a voting rights case, 
Uh, I think that he signaled where he will land on affirmative action. I mean, we saw there, you know, in which he's saying, you know, right, if, if you consider race, that's the problem. Any consideration, any consideration of race is the problem. Um, and, you know, therefore, uh, you know, we're not going to consider it, uh, you know, in, in, in going forward. Now, in Shelby, it's like, look, there were mechanisms in place. And, and here we're talking about, the, you know, the Voting Rights Act and, and uh and the, the requirement for preclearance, in other words, those states that have historically discriminated against African-Americans were required to preclear changes uh, to their to their voting voting laws uh, before they went into effect. And Roberts, in that decision, very tellingly uh, says, like, oh, no, you know, you got to change the formula. So that's the technical ruling. Right. The formula is outdated. And I agree with that. It was outdated. It should have been expanded. Right. At Ohio. But. The key, the key in that instance was this idea that, you know, because one of the things he says in there is this notion that, well, you know, you know, black people are voting, right? And we see this in the gerrymandering cases that come forward, right? Like increasing numbers of black people are voting. So how is this a function of discrimination? And Ruth Bader Ginsburg gives in that dissent, speaking of dissents, probably what will be, you know, her her, her legacy dissent, right? In which she says, you know. If it's, if, you know, if, you, if you're out in a, I'm, I'm going to do a poor job of paraphrasing her, but it said if you're walking in a rain and you have an umbrella and you're staying dry because the umbrella is open, you don't remove the umbrella, right? And then get and then you're surprised that you're wet. Of course you're going to get wet. You're staying dry because of the protections that were in place. Once you remove them, don't be surprised when you get wet. And this is what I'm saying when it comes to this question of, you know, considerations of race. If, if we, we, We've already seen the signs and signals of this. I'm just going to use Ohio State as one example. When they shifted from uh, considerations, more strong, stronger considerations of race and admissions after those 2003 decisions, over the next 15 years, the percentage of African-Americans at the Ohio State University dropped from 15% to 5%. We are going to see, and, and we've seen similar things happen in Texas. We've seen similar things happen in California. You know, the in terms of access and opportunity, at minimum, we have to consider, I would like to see considerations of race in terms of keeping that door open. A separate question for a separate town hall is what should we be doing and should we, and I believe we should, be striving for equality of outcome. That's, that's separate. And the court's not ready to deal with that yet, right? But this, this, the opportunity is so, is so important. So I think in the dissent, I think we will see a reaffirmation of the significance of diversity, right? And, and saying that this is critical. It's important to have, you know, so diverse populations, diverse communities. Um, and you can't have diverse ideas and the creativity that is born of diversity and the impact that it has uh, on people if you don't have, you know, diverse folk coming into these institutions to higher learning. I, I, I think more than likely, because that's where so much of the argument uh, has been based in, in, in recent years around this question, question of diversity. What is off the table and has been off for so long is the question of redress, right? Like, like this, we should be, and, I, and I'm a redress person. I think we should be doing more, not less, uh, to, to tackle significantly the legacy of not just slavery, but Jim Crow and the way in which it continues to impact people and people today. I don't think that we will hear anything from the court on that. It might be surprised. It might surprise me in that we do. It would be nice. I would love to hear it, you know, uh, but I think the dissenting opinions 
uh, we'll, we'll attack the basis for the argument. We'll critique the basis for the argument about the purpose of, of colorblindness. You got to have colorblindness when in reality we're just pretending if we think that there are um, laws on the books that are on the face to use colorblind language, but we're seeing this again in voting rights that are specifically designed to attack uh, and disenfranchise African-Americans. What gives us any reason why we should think that in many of those places that we should that there will be anything different uh, when it comes to emissions once that once those points of opportunity to access are removed. All right, now let's turn to the crucial question of what happens next. Professor Allen, let's imagine that the court strikes down the Harvard and the UNC programs uh, on the grounds that diversity in higher education is not a compelling interest, that the 25 years is almost over, and that there's no specific discrimination to remedy. Um, what do you imagine university admissions officers will do and how will they respond? Well, the best way to answer that question is to point to the current environment in which we can say there is decreasing legitimacy for the court in the minds of many people. And so the reactions are going to be based on the fact that they are unwilling to accept the court as arbiter. Uh, that means two things. One, doing what has been historically the case, finding subterfuges and ways around decisions, creating new grounds for new cases and new decisions. And two, protest. Uh, I would expect lively protest, uh, equally lively, if not more, as what we saw following the Dobbs decision by people who will be unreconciled no matter what formulation is used in articulating the decision. The very principles of the legitimacy of the court will be rejected, not as an abstract form of rejection, but rather in the terms of describing this as a partisan judgment and therefore not worthy of respect. Uh, I think I can predict that with almost 98% certainty. And the question then will become whether that will generate large-scale protests. That may very well happen. Although, unlike the Dobbs decision, this one will occur far enough away from an election that it may not inspire people to put as much energy into it because they're not looking to have an immediate electoral effect. That was the, the really distinguishing feature of the Dobbs decision. But there's another element to this, which I will introduce. The protest, of course, will signal the continuation of the efforts to defend, uh, I'll use the terms again, benign discrimination, to, or at least to defend affirmative action. But uh, I think that the debate has changed since the emergence of the anti-racism campaign. I don't think anti-racism is about affirmative action. And I think what will come to the forefront once affirmative action is overturned is a direct confrontation with the anti-racism campaign. I think that in some ways uh, it, that's implicit in what Dr. Jeffrey has said. And, and what anti-racism means is no longer thinking about remediation, but thinking about a complete revision of power relationships and authority within the society. And so it is an uncompromising demand that we reconfigure the grounds of our civil association in order to eliminate, in the eyes of some, historical practices that are unacceptable. I think that will become the ground upon which people will stand and fall. Uh, 
in the aftermath of the anti-affirmative action decision. Professor Jeffries, let me ask you how you believe that universities and society will respond once the court strikes down affirmative action as expected in June. Well, I think Dr. Allen is right. Um, I fully expect there to be some protests. Um, it, I, I doubt they will. I think there will be mitigating factors in terms of size uh, and scope. I think one of the mitigating factors is likely this will happen during June. So it will happen during summer where most universities uh, will not have, um, you know, many or most of their students on campus. So that will be a mitigating factor as well as the fact that it's not brushing up against uh, an election. Um, so, you know, I think the protests might be limited in scale and scope, but I certainly think they will be there. And I think w- we may not see them in an immediate sense, but perhaps in, on sort of a rolling basis as, it, as, as state legislatures, state gover- governments, state governors, um, and uh, universities begin to issue particular mandates or change policies that become clear. And so I can almost imagine immediately uh, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, you know, Ron DeSantis, um, you know, you know, saying that race will not be considered in any way, shape or form in any way, this, that and the other. Uh, and we're doing away with diversity. I mean, he's always trying to do, do away with these things right now. And so that will just add sort of wind to his sail, wind to their sail. Um, so that will be one thing, I think, one of the reactions that we'll see. Another reaction that will trickle down and have an impact on the larger state universities, the public universities. But of course, this is, you know, we're talking about Harvard University. So we're, we're talking about the impact on private universities as well. And there, I think we will have to wait and see uh, to how, you know, sort of universities reconfigure and reimagine. My guess is that we'll see, you know, a lot more sort of socioeconomic um, sort of framing of admissions, which was the response to um, uh, the twenty the two thousand and three decisions. Okay, we'll just we'll just we'll just do away with race and we'll look at socioeconomics and these sort of other factors, you know, which will catch some, but obviously not catch all. Um, and 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 then lastly, I think you know Dr. Allen is absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that came out of the summer of twenty twenty was sort of young people calling for an end to systemic racism and, and, and talking about sort of anti-racism and saying, listen, we got to deal with the ways in which inequality is, is, is sort of built in. Uh, racial discrimination is, is sort of embedded in some of our systems and structures. And if we're going to deal with that, then we are talking about, you know, a wholesale change. The way in which we reimagine much of what we do, not just you know, at the, the point of admissions, because in many ways, that's almost too late. It's always almost been too late. Like we have to be thinking about, you know, sort of education uh, from the beginning, right? Um, from 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 preschool and K, uh, kindergarten, early grades. You know, if we ever dealt with that in a substantial way, then the question of admissions uh, would be off the table. Uh, but we haven't dealt with the early. We've put the burden on universities and we're pl- we've been trying to play catch up. There, so hopefully uh, this will force us uh, to look more expansively at ways to create change and opportunity. Well, you've both put on the table several important reactions, ranging from uh, protest uh, efforts to implement the decision. Um, Professor Allen, you called it 
subterfuge and, and Professor Jeffries, you, you called it you know, an effort to get at questions of race involving other means like socioeconomic uh, focus and also uh, a re-questioning of, of the nature of the uh, the movement for uh, uh, black equality and what its goals are. Um, let, let's focus on the practical response of admissions officers and what can they do? This was a question Justice Barrett asked at the oral argument. Uh, Professor Allen, are, are, will people be allowed to put in their essays accounts of how uh, they overcame racial discrimination? Um, and how, how can and can't universities take that into account as they make their admissions decisions? What did you mean by subterfuge and how do you think it'll pan out? Well, uh, by subterfuge, I meant, of course, that there are ways in which to talk about holistic decision making that are simply a cover for making race based decisions. And so I think you'll still see some of that effort in universities. Uh, as to what people are permitted to put in their applications, uh, certainly there will be no limitation on that. They will describe themselves uh, in self identifying terms. Of course, we're living in an age now in which we grant to people the discretion to identify as they will, which makes it problematic to take those things very seriously, since you, you might always get the, the Rachel Dolezal effect. Uh, so, so you don't know from those declarations exactly what it is you're looking at. But it is also the case, it seems to me, and I've, I've written about this with, to great extent in many of my publications, there's a lot to do for admissions officers if they got off their butts and reached out to people properly. They, they can, get, and I've done it personally as a deed, they can go into communities and make opportunities known to people where they aren't always known. I've always told people, look, uh, my mother always wanted me to go to Harvard University when I graduated high school. Uh, she, she had this but a fascination. <laughs> but of course, we were poor, uh, coming from a small southern town, and we had no idea what it would I mean, I could qualify to enter Harvard. We had no idea how to get there. We had no money to do it with. And there was no outreach to us to provide us that gateway. And so there is plenty of room for robust outreach if people were serious about their commitment to changing terms of engagement in these regards. And I always say to people, if you don't see that robust outreach into distant pathways, you know they're lying about their commitments to make a positive contribution. Professor Jeffries, how do you think admissions officers will respond, given the fact that people can describe their experiences with their racial identities on their essays, and, and given the fact that many universities are now test optional Will the decision change things all that much or not? Well, I'm hopeful that um, colleges and universities, and particularly those of um, that historically have, have not had a strong presence of African-Americans and people of color, that they will do exactly what Dr. Allen suggests that they should do. That's exactly it. Sort of a robust policy and action of recruitment. Um, you know, I'm, you know, Ohio State University, majority of players on the, on the football team uh, for the Ohio State University. And Dr. Allen understands how, you know, Big Ten football works. Uh, and, you know, majority of brothers playing on these football teams, now, they don't just miraculously show up. They are recruited. Right. I mean, there is a robust effort to reach into neighborhoods and recruit talent. And that talent is these sort of young African-American, African-American men and students. We can be doing the same thing if we wanted to. And so I am hopeful 
that there will be that sort of response. I am afraid, though, that we will not see that in enough places. I'm afraid that uh, universities, out of fear of being sued, because this is what we saw in, 20, in, in 2003, will pull back and, and, and pretend as though they're doing something and, and, and are not doing nearly enough. We'll, we'll say that their hands are tied and they, and they can't reach into the communities uh, that they should be reaching into. And, and so I think the, the, the unfortunate effect will be that we, we don't see that kind of robust engagement that we see with recruiting uh, African-Americans to play sports. Uh, and therefore, we will see an unfortunate decline and in some places a precipitous decline uh, in the presence of African-Americans uh, on the college campus. Professor Allen, might a decision establishing a, a, a more colorblind approach to the 14th Amendment have legal implications in other spheres, in employment, in promotion, in hiring and firing? And of course, Title VI may be construed here, too, to be more colorblind. Uh, could you imagine it transforming the legal landscape? Uh, of course, and in fact, the most emphatic influence or effect of the decision will be throughout the federal workforce. For, for we are embedded with so many policies there and practices that foster recourse to affirmative action loosely described that there'll be a thorough house cleaning will be necessary following the decision. That's where the greatest trauma is actually going to be experienced. It won't be in the large corporations because they can pretend to clean it up just as they pretended that they were doing something else before. They, they have such wide scope of discretion that they aren't terribly worried and don't have to worry about someone looking closely over their shoulders. But the federal workforces and to some extent state workforces, they will come under close scrutiny. If I may, Jeff, Dr. Allen is... is, is Absolutely right. And I'm especially concerned about that because the federal government, state government in general, has done a much better job of being open and providing access to uh, African-Americans uh, and people of color, but historically African-Americans. Disproportionately, the black middle, cl the black middle class uh, works for government uh, because government has followed these policies of uh of equal employment of, of creating these opportunities and so if we do have this sort of house cleaning uh as dr allen suggests and it, and it is very likely uh to occur i think that will have a disproportionate and unfortunate uh impact on african americans and the black middle class who for so long uh have found um the government employment uh, not dependency, not creating dependency. We do, in fact, need a government, right, to do certain things. That government employment has been a point of entry into the middle class uh, because so many other doors in the private sector have been have been closed. So I, I, I'm concerned. I'm concerned uh, about that fate and future. So, so interesting. I think this may be closing thoughts. Although it's clear that we must bring you both back after the decision actually comes down and, and, and continue the discussion because you're both so incredibly illuminating on this crucial topic. But Professor Allen, you suggested that there was about to be a historic clash between what the Supreme Court says is legally and constitutionally permissible and the goals of what you described as the anti-racism movement, which is to redistribute power in society. 
Tell us more about that clash and how do you think that the courts and society will resolve it? I think what we'll see happening is a ratcheting up of the effort to delegitimize the court. That's a short-term gambit that's being pursued already. It's short-term in the sense that people do not see an opportunity to make a genuine impact on legal interpretation unless they can develop the political thrust to gain a temporary foothold there and develop the kinds of decisions they would wish to impose. So they can do that if they can delegitimize the court within the short-term horizon while it's still possible to get new appointments to the court, force people off the court. And therefore, that means you're going to have a heightened volubility to the rhetoric of instability and delegitimization over the course of the next 15 months. This is going to be the critical period, and I think that's what's going to follow from it. Professor Jeffrey's last word to you. Uh, how, how do you think uh, society will resolve this clash we're about to see between the court and uh, portions of the citizens? Well, I think there will be a questioning of the legitimacy of the court. Um, but it's interesting because I think the the blueprint or the playbook that Dr. Allen that you just laid out is what political conservatives uh, w- was their playbook. I mean, th- this for the last two and a half, two and a half decades um, until they gained a majority on the court, calling out the court as you know, for the activist judges. You can't, you know, there's activist judges, activist judges, activist judges. Now we have a majority on the court. No more activist judges, right? Now the court suddenly has this renewed legitimacy. And when we look at some of the contemporary actions of uh, justices and then how they arrived on the court, I think it is legitimate uh, to question not the legitimacy, uh, but rather the credibility, right? Uh, the integrity. Um, I, I think that's different. I think we should uh, you know, always question in all of our institutions, you know, the credibility of the people who were there. Um, but I think it's important that we acknowledge the legitimacy um, of, of, of the court, of the branches of government, uh, because in the absence of that, what do we have? I mean, that's just, that's just chaos. Uh, and so we don't want that. Uh, but we also have to demand integrity so that the decisions, even when we disagree with them, uh, we can believe that they came from a place um, of sincerity uh, and not uh, uh, sort of base ideology. Uh, and, and it's hard to see, uh, given the current, some of the previous rulings, uh, that that will be the case or it will be, this ruling will be received that way uh, going forward. Professor Allen and Professor Jeffries, thank you so much, really providing a model for civil thoughtful dialogue on this most contentious of all issues. It's an honor to host these debates. I learned so much from them, and I I know our listeners do too. And I am very eager to see you both again after the decision comes down. Professor Allen, Professor Jeffries, thank you so much for joining. It's been a pleasure to join you. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. This episode was produced by John Guerra, Tanea Tauber, Lana Ulrich, and Bill Pollack. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. Research was provided by Sam Desai, Alana Ulrich, and the Constitutional Content Team. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and civil debate. 
And if you enjoyed the episode, please also subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center. That's on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And it's the live feed from all of our great debates at the NCC. You can sign up for our newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, and the engagement of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.